This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. I'm joined by my two colleagues this week, Ed Reed and Ryan Duff. Now, this, of course, is an audio medium. However, myself and Ed can... We do have a visual here, a rather striking visual. Um, I don't want to call it a disgusting Christmas shirt, Ryan. That feels unkind. No, it is. Um, why don't you just describe for the, 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 the listeners here? Because they can't, they can't see this. They're not getting... They're not getting what we're getting, um, shall I say. What, what, t- tell us a bit about what you're wearing, he said, as HR knock on the door. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm writing like the ASOS description here. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a sort of camp collar, uh, short-sleeved shirt that's green and white striped with uh, with uh, very sporting uh, candy canes and hollies all over it. Wow. And it's made out of a material that I'd, I'd say it feels like if I uh, walk past any sort of open flame, I will combust. Mm. <laughs> Which is the, the best material for Christmas shirts. Um, the uglier, the better uh, at this time of year, I think. I, I was going to ask if you're a Christmas person, but I mean, I think I've got my answer. Uh, Ed, <laughs> do you see yourself um, gearing up for Christmas in, in such a festive fashion? I mean, I've got to I, I, I came out pretty strong with some 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 large bar humbugs this morning. Uh, my my wife was I came downstairs. My wife was playing uh, the now that's what I call Christmas album, and I just felt do you know what half past seven in the morning. That's that's not what I'm uh, that's not what I'm down for. So that that really 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 pushed me away. Like I just you know like Boney M. I mean it's 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 too early. It's too early. So were you uh, were you whammed this morning? We used to play this game in the bars where we used to see how long we could uh, we could last without hearing last Christmas. Uh it's it's never like it, it got to like it got to a point that it was how long in a day could you go without hearing it. Um, <laughs> it's never far away horrendous. this time of year is it? It's really never far away. Um yeah, my wife is started the process of getting myself her and our newborn some matching christmas pajamas so i really don't know uh how i feel about that uh, but i'll report back in due course i think we should probably talk about energy at some point during this podcast <laughs> um yeah there's been quite a bit going on this week but we'll start with petrofac this week we noticed last week that the price had gone down by some uh, 50%, uh, their share price down by some 50% uh, in the, the prior month or so. There had been no news, no announcements. So why was that going on? It's, you know, it's won a lot of work this year, six and a, 6.6 billion, I think, in backlog. Big deal with the Netherlands uh, power firm Tenet. So, you know, we produced a piece on that. And then on Monday, Petrofac came out with a trading update, which shed a bit more light. So, uh, you know, context there, as I say, Petrofac down 50% in the last month or so. The override issue seems to be around cash flow. There are issues with securing contract financing. You've got banks and other institutions who are less keen, shall we say, to lend to oil and gas firms, oil and gas supply chain, the flight of capital there is a, is a well-trodden issue. And meanwhile, Petrofac has been trying to secure what appears to be kind of delayed payments for some legacy contracts. And the, the conflation of all that kind of saw its debt go up during its first half trading update. I think they had cash outflows of some $200 million plus. And, and why does all that matter? I mean, if there's a reluctance, you know, from debt providers to fund their future workflows, that means that, you know, there's concerns around their ability to deliver contracts, I think, in a nutshell. They need to convert wins to revenue. Um, you know, uh, some of the analysts we spoke to, uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne being one, they said until that balance sheet is strengthened, you know, they may struggle to win new business. And it seems that, you know, investors are getting a sense of all this. And, and as I say, this trading up trading update we had on Monday wasn't expected, um, but it, it, it appeared. Um, Petrofac said it was trying to figure out a way to improve its cash flow and deliver returns to shareholders. It said it would not meet its neutral 
uh, cash flow targets for 2023, uh, and it's looking at its options. So what are those options, I hear you ask? Um, a sale, a sale of non-core parts of the business. They haven't specified what those are, but that could have kind of interesting implications. This is a business of 8,500 employees worldwide. For a company like this, that's relatively small, actually, which we can maybe get into. Um, they're also doing, you know, talking to investors about taking non-controlling stakes in other parts of the business. And, you know, clearly sales and, and that kind of avenue would be a way to um, improve cash flow a bit. Uh, shares went up a bit on Monday. Um, it's cooled a bit. We're still kind of at 50% lower than we were up this time a month ago uh, at time of recording. Um, so, yeah, I mean, where does this leave them? You know, in a weird position, good capability um, across different kind of energy sectors, uh, good work in kind of rebuilding their order book. But, you know, and investors want to see profits and cash flows, and that's not really happening. And until that does happen, it looks like they're in for a bit of an uphill climb. Asda, do you think that, I mean, I've seen some some suggestions that maybe during the the, the, the downturn, they, they maybe entered in some contracts that were maybe uh, undervalued their services, um, that, that, that maybe they they were kind of, you know, too generous with those with those deals in order to sort of secure work. Do you, do you, do you have any sort of a feeling about that? I think that may well be true. Um, but I don't have any specific insight on it. But I think what what's certainly been said in the past few days is, as they try to get a, get to grips with you know these finance issues, as they win new work, they need to be able to secure you know not just new work but favourable terms. Um, and I think that perhaps um, speaks to the point that you're making there, Ed. It needs to be, it does, you know, I'm not sure whether a race to the bottom is, is a fair uh, fair point to make about Petrofac. I don't know. Um, but certainly we need to have, uh, they, they need to have favourable terms going forward for new work. Um, and, and think maybe another point to kind of highlight, eight and a half thousand people, you know, that sounds like a lot, but not as I say, for this type of business, and, and I think, you know, there's there's this skills crunch going on. It has to kind of, you need so you need to invest in skilled engineers in, in anticipation of new business, but if you overhire, you've got your bottom line issues there. And if you hold back, um, then, you know, could that have problems with delivery of certain projects as well? And, you know, you do have that volatility and oil price and, 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 you know, questions whether customers will embark on new projects. And you've got all of that going on, you know, at the same time as, you know, they're trying to secure new work and, as I say, you know, convert it into profits, gain strong terms for their contracts. You know, uh, Petrofac has kind of previously set out its stall. They want to achieve, I think it's four to five billion sales annually. You know, I think there's perhaps still some questions over that as, uh, until the cash flow returns into a decent position. They've got a good pipeline ahead. I suppose you might be looking at this from an investor perspective. Will there be will there be much by returns to investors if, if they can meet that? I'm, I don't think there's much scope for dividends at this particular point based on what we've seen. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, who knows? Can, can they turn it around? Um, we'll see. We'll see what this uh, sales piece uh, brings. Yeah, it, it's quite an interesting sort of chicken and egg situation they found themselves in right you know that sort of that that low low level of staffing uh, just sort of trying to strike that balance between having the the people power behind you to sort of deliver these sort of big contracts that would sort of boost that that balance book but also yeah not not over hiring because that that's that's a drain on income too right so is there is there a reason in particular why their their staffing levels are so low for a company of their size is there something that sort of caused that or is it just a interesting stance they've taken. I'm trying to rapidly cast my mind back to COVID times and what kind of situation went on there. Um, we know that, you know, a lot of EPCs did cut back uh, then. Uh, and, and obviously, yeah, we're into a skills crunch now. So it could just be a conflation of different issues. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. Uh, I believe Petrofac's next kind of trading update is December 20th, um, assuming that the one that just passed doesn't 
preclude that for any reason. I mean, I remember last week there was some discussion about the swinish short sellers um, and uh, you know, sort of unfairly trying to drive down prices. And I remember there was obviously there was sort of discussion around in in the energy sector. There's obviously this kind of there's kind of almost kind of a conspiracy theory about 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 short sellers. But it feels that maybe they had the the right end of the stick in this particular point. Yeah, I mean, I did put that to uh, a couple of of people about a couple of analysts. You know, there does seem to be short sellers taking up positions here. One of one of them kind of said, you know. Um, Shareholders always claim market manipulation when prices go down, but never the same when it goes the other way, um, which I think maybe there's a, a fair point to be made there. Look, it seems that the short sellers have been kind of lingering about for a while and and they have been, you know, taking particular note to Petrofac. But I mean, you know, push comes to shove asking, you know, what's going on here? They were Everyone's pretty, pretty well in agreement. The cash flows f- issue for investors, that seems to be what... The main problem is here. They didn't seem to put any kind of undue stock in the the short sellers. As I say, they seem to have been lingering about for some time. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think you, you may be right there, Ed. Um, got the right end of the sick this time. But, uh, yeah, it, it, not too much stock being put in the short sellers piece, uh, as far as I can see right now. But I would say if you're a short seller of Petrofac, you know, get in touch. Uh, <laughs> out loud at energyvoice.com. Uh, tell us what you think uh, Petrofac might want to sell off. <laughs> That's a good way of gathering news, isn't it? Just come on, come on and shout into the void. Opportunistic. Absolutely. All right. Yeah, we'll leave Petrofac there for now. Uh, and next up, we'll be heading over to COP28 and a bit more from the massive deals from Mazdar. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, Ed, uh, it seems like Mazdar, the UAE, have been busy buying uh, in the past few days. Lots of deals going on. Um, Maybe just... Tell us more and dive in. Yeah, so as as, as you say, obviously COP twenty eight is is well underway. I think we're sort of about a week in, so you know there's kind of a bit of a sort of a, a direction is is emerging. Obviously, as always with these kind of uh, lollapaloozas, there's there's a there's a bunch of people who are like, ah, oh, this is going to solve everything, and there's other bunch of people who are like, ah, oh, COP is the worst. Uh, it will never solve any of these problems. What are we all doing? Um, and 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 that 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 feels very much part of the course. Whether you know whether whether it was uh, Sharma Sheikh or Glasgow or whatever, that that is very much uh, how the chorus goes. But I guess like looking at the sort of the, some of the some of the details. I mean, I think obviously so 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 Mazda is uh, is, is obviously very much the sort of you know the the, the home champion. And obviously, um, so the, the the chairman of Mazda is also uh, is, is Sultan Al Jabbar, who's also the president delegate of of, of COP twenty eight. He's also the head of Adnoc 
whisper it at these uh, at these at these times. Obviously, that's uh, that's a point that that raises some ire from uh, from, from from some uh, parts of, of of the audience. Um, but so there's there's very clearly a sense that that you know Mazda has got a lot to a lot to play. It's got it's it's got some got some big goals of its own. Um, obviously, sort of 2030 is looming, and and it, it's 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 aiming for sort of I think uh, I should check that, but it's something like a hundred uh, gigawatts of power by that point. Um, yeah, so 100 gigawatts and and one million tons of uh, of, of green hydrogen by 2030. Um, so. T- to get there, it's it's um, looking at basically deals all around the world. So Adnoc largely plays at home, although it's kind of expanding a little bit. But Mazda was set up with this kind of aim of driving sort of renewable energy adoption throughout the world. There's there's a degree of sort of domestic uh, demand going on there. It's it's got its own sort of demonstration city, Mazda City, just outside uh, Abu Dhabi, where they try and sort of demonstrate how some of these these technologies might sort of provide a way forwards with with lower energy but essentially Mazda is, is is looking internationally so I read a piece about halfway through the week um saying that they'd signed up to around 20 gigawatts of of, of capacity um there have been subsequent developments so that that number's kind of out of date but it kind of gives you a bit of a sense of the scale of the kind of the ambition there um, and so um, it was sort of Malaysia, Kyrgyzstan, Kazakhstan, uh, Angola. But I think also quite interesting, and kind of maybe, maybe bringing it to the back to the sort of the North Sea audience. There's been a kind of a few kind of quite interesting deals that they've been striking in the UK, North Sea around around sort of offshore wind. Uh, which, Alistair, maybe you could shed a bit more light on. But I, I think just kind of on that note, I mean, so and kind of tying it into some of those kind of broader pressures in the offshore wind. Uh, space i was at uh, an mcas uh, seminar uh, this week where they were sort of talking about the sort of the, the a, a new contracting model to try and sort of you know i suppose kind of rebalance that kind of risk reward uh you know between contractors and and, and developers and it's quite interesting to see that Despite those challenges that we've seen in the UK North Sea, um, and and of course the wider sort of offshore wind, you know, area, right? Obviously, the US is has also struggling to make some make its headway, and you know, we're, so we're seeing those kind of domestic, that there's pressures all around. But it seems that despite that kind of pressure, you know, Mazda is still willing to come into this area, and it's 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 obviously very positive. But it's it's also, I suppose, it's quite. Um, you've got to wonder to what extent are they do people see sort of uk offshore wind as the kind of the growth area that it once was do they do they see that sort of slow down it would be it would be really fascinating to get a bit more kind of color from mazda about about sort of how it sees the future developing and how it sees that sort of that risk reward with contractors and and sort of trying to obviously kind of bring along the supply chain and and, and those sorts of things alice what are your thoughts because you you wrote a piece uh this week about mazda and was it rwe yeah that's right Right. Um, so they, they took a stake in Doggerbank South from RWE. They're going to, I think, jointly invest something like $11 billion in that. I think one of the other deals that came out this week was a stake in East Anglia 3. And uh, yeah, there has been a lot of concern, hasn't there, about the viability of some of these projects given, you know, inflationary pressures. Obviously, there's been issues around uh, the CFD of late, the low strike price. Um, you know, how viable is this really? Um, and, you know, I guess the UAE having... Apparently, all the money in the world don't seem too concerned about that. But I think I think you're right, Ed. I would be very interested in hearing a bit more um, from them in terms of, of, of why the UK, and it does seem that the UK and the UAE have this kind of strong investment ties going on at the moment. You know, I'm wondering, you know, is having the COP presidency playing a role here, part of the push to 
um, you know, inject cash. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem that given everything that's going on, um, maybe a more scrupulous investor would be questioning some of these um, uh, these deals. Um, it doesn't seem like Mazdar are unduly concerned from, from what I can see. Um, you know, maybe money isn't the only thing that's driving driving them at this particular point. But I think, I think yeah, I'd, I'd be very keen to hear a bit more about what's uh what's going on there i mean i i think like clearly they they do have that that big sort of 100 gigawatt target right which um is obviously incredibly ambitious and 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 you know looking at those kind of global ambitions around offshore wind the uk's got its own is it 40 gigawatts 50 gigawatts by 2030 50 by 2030 which spoiler alert doesn't look like it's going to happen <laughs> boy things are going right now right right so i mean yeah i mean i think it, it it does feel like there's kind of a bit of a bit of an agreement that that's uh unlikely to be delivered but it, it i mean i suppose obviously uh you know for, for a company like mazda kind of coming into uh to, to the uk offshore wind area and I mean, obviously it's, it's kind of been been looking at this sort of area for a while but it, it does feel like i suppose there's a degree of of, of sort of uh experience and knowledge in in the uk offshore that 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 it can kind of get it get you know get into and and and, and possibly kind of take that kind of more globally uh, which I think is is quite an interesting, and 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 they they do have these kind of really ambitious expansion plans. I mean, I think you know, so they they they've been doing a lot of uh, offshore wind, and obviously that's kind of kind of a global drive. They've signed a slew of uh, of, of green hydrogen deals in the last couple of days, and also I think um, the deal to kind of move into Kyrgyzstan uh, was I think their first move into hydropower. Which again, you know, kind of really provides uh, an opportunity to scale, right? Which I think is what they need if they're going to achieve that hundred gigawatt, you know, kind of target, which obviously they they, they intend to. And so uh, it, it feels like they need to make these big moves into offshore wind and um, and, and hydropower and things like that in order to kind of try and reach that target, because otherwise. I, I wonder. I wonder how how hard that might be. Obviously, that then provides uh, further stresses to the su- su- supply chain, doesn't it? And, it? and I suppose it kind of speaks to some of those challenges, you know, that we saw with sort of Petrofac earlier, around you know how do you how do, how do you make it work for for all parties involved? And and obviously in in the renewable sector, it feels like there's maybe a sense that uh, those contracts maybe aren't as well developed maybe the the risk reward isn't quite there in the same way that is with oil and gas although obviously there are challenges with oil and gas as well but it feels like that 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 Mazda's kind of making these moves out of necessity right if to to hit those targets um but obviously you know they're they're pouring more sort of fuel into this inflationary fire is uh, is is possibly a bit of a, a bit of a concern. Yeah, I was just uh, wanting to cycle back to your point uh, you made earlier, Alice. They're on, you know, like they've got deep pockets. Yeah, they, they they do have seemingly all the the money in the world, but that doesn't solve the the whole problem, right? That doesn't solve the problem that the UK wind sector is facing. Yes, it does. Uh, it does sort of tackle that inflationary pressures, but you know, yeah, like we've touched on, supply chain is still constrained. There's still you know demand for resources that need to be met, and maybe chiefly among this as well is, is the increased money going to help these projects get grid connection in the uk you know like it's that's not up to them you know what i mean it's it, it's not tackling everything is it it's it a it, you know don't get me wrong in, increased investment in the sector is fantastic but it, it, absolutely not yeah it's there's there's yeah there's loads to be done yeah I suppose, look, you know, the UK obviously has its has its fair share of challenges, as you as you as you mentioned, right? I think you know the grid connection does feel like a like a really big challenge, uh, and obviously a lot of people with strong feelings about that. But I think at the same time there is 
a degree of, um, should we say, openness in the UK offshore wind. You know, you can bring in vessels, you can bring in supplies in ways that with other countries, I mean, I'm thinking particularly about the US, where they have, you know, you, you know, the Jones Act says you can't bring in, you can't use, uh, you know, sort of uh, essentially foreign ships. So you got to, you know, it's not that's not the case in the UK, right? You, you know, South Africa, there were there were sort of restrictions on sort of local content around around. You know, so I think that, that there is a lot to be said about about sort of the UK's um, opportunities, sort of upstream. But I think downstream, you're right; it, it it gets more challenging and congested. Just want to throw something in quickly, if I could, and this hasn't really been a consideration for the oil and gas industry historically, um, but you know, I mean, and this seems maybe separate to the various supply chain issues. Maybe we don't need another one on top. But you know, look, obviously the UAE has these strong ties to the UK. Energy isn't the only sector it's been looking to invest in. Um, you know, the country has very strong curtailment of, you know, freedom of expression and assembly. You know, we see what we see in the tourism side. Obviously, we hear the stories about detention, treatment of construction workers, etc. Should there be more of a conversation around who gets to invest here? And, you know, perhaps tying into the local content stuff. What do you guys think? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. Yeah, that's oh, I don't I don't think either of us want to pick that up. But, um, it's a whole other kettle of fish, really. Ed looks like he does. Let's go. I mean, yeah, well, I mean, yeah. Look, it's 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 tricky, isn't it? I mean, I think you know there there is a there is a there is always a kind of a conversation to be had, and I think you know obviously there are you know there are discussions around sort of areas of strategic interest, right? So I think you know, for instance, the the, the sale of the Telegraph is kind of on underway at the moment. You know, there's you know sort of suggestions the UAE may come in and and and, and buy control of that, and you know, does that does that then go to kind of government review? Does that is that you know does that face kind of additional checks? I mean, I. I don't know. I mean, I think um, it's 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 a challenge, but you know, the the UAE has you know long been a, a friend of the UK. I think you know there there is an extent to which um, you know these are deep relationships. We you know there there is that sort of energy knowledge. I mean, I think you know you, you can probably find fault with, uh, with 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 any investor. So. I I don't I don't I don't know if the UK is in a position to 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 kind of you know um, ask too many questions. Frankly, if it if it wants to kind of you know try and try and hone in on that sort of uh, fifty gigawatt target or get anywhere near it, we're going to need a lot of cash, and some of that cash is going to come from domestic sources, and some of it's going to come from overseas. I don't. I mean, I don't know. What what, what are your thoughts, Alistair? You you kind of raised this particular. Uh... Yeah. I... I, I think I think I would I would wholeheartedly agree with you, and I, I think frankly, if the investment doesn't come here, it will go elsewhere, right? Um, but yeah, it just, it's just something that occurs to me that you know, um, are we scrutinising that side enough um, in our race to get to fifty gigawatts or, or whatever else? You know, I, I, I'm not really hearing much um, around that at this point. But it's yeah, it's a, a definitely a tricky one. Um, but yeah, I think ultimately if. If they don't invest here, they will probably find investment opportunities elsewhere, and then the UK would perhaps be worse off for it. But anyway, we'll move on from there. Thanks for that rundown, Ed. Next up, we'll be going back to the North Sea, where Ryan's been looking at, well, some big swathes of acreage being handed back. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed, and I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. 
as more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, not to spoil the magic too much, but Ryan and I are reconvening the next day to dig into this relinquishment issue. We got some updated figures from the NSTA on uh, Thursday evening. Uh, Ryan, run us through what's been going on. Yeah, of course. So yeah, it does. This is a strange feeling of deja vu. Yeah, but we're we're back, and um, yeah, let's let's dive into what the NSTA have told us. So. In, in the 2020 uh, licensing round, the 30-second licensing round in the UK, the North Sea Transition Authority handed out 90 uh, new licences. Um, and it's confirmed this week that uh, 51 of those have been handed back. That's around 57% um, following the, the term deadline at the, the start of this month. So a total of uh, about 14,700 square kilometres of acreage has been relinquished to to the UK regulator. An NSTA spokesperson said that many of these licences shared a common initial term phase expiry date so that it makes sense why they've kind of all come in at roughly about the same time. However, uh, Peter Browning-Stamp, principal geologist at Horizon Energy Global, said that exploration licensing in the UK is the lowest it's been in the last 50 years, and it's likely to decline further. I suppose the, the, the argument against that is, you know, as, as the industry continually reaffirms, this is a declining basin in the UK. There is a limited amount of resource. Uh, you know, often the term unlimited extraction is kind of scoffed at as, you know, well, there's only X amount of oil and gas in the UK and even less of that is recoverable. So it does make sense. But this does seem like quite quite a big, big portion of the licenses handed out just before the pandemic that have been since handed back. You know, reasoning for this could could range from from a load of different things you know check your bingo cards because the usual list of gripes are on here but maybe the most uh most modern one maybe the most uh interesting one that uh mr browning stamp addressed was the the lack of consistency in in license awards you know we've we've had a couple of, we had a good few years in between the 32nd and 33rd licensing round with the the winners of the most recent round only being announced earlier this year. So that creates a little bit of uncertainty, uh, according to the the geologist. But there are a number of other concerns that, yes, I I, I imagine our regular listeners are maybe even sick of hearing uh, the, the political uncertainty in the in the UK. You know, we've got general election. The two side, uh, the two major parties in the UK seem to be growing further and further apart by the day when it comes to oil and gas signals, when it comes to their policy, their stance on in the industry. Um, but then we also have that that 
pesky fiscal instability that comes up time and time again, namely the energy profits levy or windfall tax. You know, it's creating a headline rate of around 75% um, for North Sea operators. You know, it, it does. It, it, it could be said that it is going to discourage investment. You know, in the first year that the EPL came in, around uh, 90% of North Sea operators decided to scale back their funding. So this this also has a bit of an impact. But I wanted to, to put this to you, Alistair. Uh, we've just had a licensing round, like I just said. Um, we still have many of these same issues. Yes, we do have maybe that consistency of licensing issue maybe fixed with uh, with the Tories' stance on annual North Sea licenses, but the other two are still very much problems. Can we expect to see the winners of the licenses handed out this year, dishing them back to to the regulator? I think some of the um, political uncertainty issues that seem to have led to the many of these being handed back, they, they seem to still be there, um, you know, and I don't necessarily see that getting more stable as we enter a general election. Um, but yeah, it depends, I suppose, on the license term of the current ones. You know, could things be settled up before they have to hand these back or make well decisions or whatever else they need to do? Um, they, they, I think the NSA, they're being a bit more careful in terms of their offers and, and how they go and, and approach um, licensing rounds going forward. Um, I, I think you're right, the, the, the prospect of, you know, consistent annual licensing rounds, as the Tories have suggested, would, you know, seem to um, seem to assuage some 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 people like, uh, you know, about this concern about inconsistency. But I mean, if people are handing handing licenses back in this volume, you know, you do wonder about whether there's appetite for that in this current kind of fiscal regime. I think I think basically we need to see some sort of stability um, and some sort of, um, you, know, you know, stability in the tax regime before you kind of see more um, more licensing rounds and without the risk of people just handing stuff back because they can't get investors or whatever else. As you said, Ryan, 90% of operators cut back investment due to the EPL. Um, if you're trying to find a partner to develop your license in that kind of environment, it's probably not going to be all that successful, right? So yeah, I think they need some stability in the tax regime, a bit of stability and less noise from the various political parties who really aren't taking cognizance of some of the some of the impact on workers and things like that when they make these these announcements. Um, so stability is needed before you know we'll we'll be able to see if there's any more kind of handbacks like this going forward. I think. Yeah, I think uh, I think when when the Tories announced their their idea of uh, their policy for annual North Sea licenses, I think we discussed that at the time, and I, I remember bringing up supply and demand, and that's not for the the hydrocarbons, but mainly for the licenses. You know. You can increase the supply. You can increase how often uh, you award these things. But frankly, if if it doesn't make sense to put the money on the table, then they're not going to do it. Right? It's just not going to happen. So, I, I, the it, this seems indicative of the situation that we we cover quite frequently. But it's it's putting putting numbers to that to show just how much of an impact that uh, that political and fiscal climates having on on North Sea operators. Okay, well, thanks very much for that rundown there, Ryan. Uh, and that is it for this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. So thanks again, Ryan and Ed, yesterday, for joining me. I've been Elsa Thomas, and thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice leading the global energy conversation.
Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.